welcome to the NBA Deep Dives podcast. I'm your host, Nick Agar Johnson. Today, we are covering another division in the division preview series. And today we're covering what I think is the most interesting division in the NBA and is certainly the closest division in terms of projected records from top to bottom. And that is the Northwest Division. So today I'm here with Jordan Christmas. And Jordan, how are you doing? I'm doing good. I had my first run-in with NBA Twitter yesterday. It may or may not have been related to one of the teams that we're going to talk about, but I made it out alive. Well, that's always the important part when talking about NBA Twitter, because it can get real vicious. <laughs> yes, I've can. seen some interesting <laughs> moments. I had a run-in with a writer on Twitter who normally covers one of the teams we're about to talk about, but it was a conversation about my beloved Sacramento Kings, and basically it just devolved into trollery almost immediately, which I guess tends to happen when you're talking about the Sacramento Kings. That's always fun. <laughs> Anyway, let's move on to the teams that are actually in this division, and I want to start with the Denver Nuggets, who added Paul Millsap in what might have been the best signing of the offseason in terms of fit. Obviously, Millsap is not as good a player at 32 as Gordon Hayward will probably be next season at 28, but just for the impact that Millsap will have on Denver's defense and his incredible fit alongside Nikola Jokic, I think he will really change the face of this team and take them from a team that was on the outside looking into the playoff picture last year to a team that I think is close to a lock for one of the bottom seeds in the Western Conference playoffs. But what are your thoughts on the Paul Millsap signing? I absolutely love this uh, signing. It really is a perfect fit. And Paul Millsap has been quietly, he's been a top 20 player. It's just most fans do not want to watch Atlanta. And I mean, I don't blame them. Uh, the Hawks can't even get fans in their own stadium. So people don't really know about how good Paul Millsap is. I mean, he is a, he could shoot the three, he can pass, he could pass out of the post, pass on the elbows, and he's a really, really good defender. Maybe he has lost half a step the last few years because he is 32. But I just can't wait to see him with uh, Jokic, who is also, he's just, Jokic is just a mix of Arvita Sabonis and Bill Walton to me. And just seeing them work in the elbows and having wings cut off of them in the post or running splits, I just can't wait to see what type of actions Mike Malone runs with these two bigs. And it really is, I guess, um, it's, speaking of the defense, Whenever when Denver started Jokic last year, December fifteenth, they had the best offensive rating in basketball, and that's keep in mind that's above the Warriors. But they also had the worst defensive rating, allowing one hundred and eleven point nine points per one hundred possessions. And so with this Millsap signing, it's not going to necessarily remedy all the problems, but if you can get to maybe league average, maybe in the top. 18 to 17 range to maybe even top 15 uh, with the offense and the passing that Jokic and Millsap provide and scoring on the post. I could just see so many ways I can or I can't wait to watch this Nuggets team this year and see what Mike Malone does with this. Now this is a really versatile lineup across the board. I can't wait to watch them play. We'll talk more about where Denver's defense might end up at the end of next season, but I wanted to go back to the three-point shooting conversation. Now, Millsap was not a three-point shooter at all during his time in Utah, 
then I guess it was his last season in Utah, actually. He had that famous three-point explosion against the Miami Heat in a game that the Jazz won in overtime. And then he went to Atlanta, and his first two years, he shot 36% from deep both years. And then in 2015-16, he shot 31.9% from deep. And last year, he shot 31.1% from deep. And I guess my thought is that I think Millsap shooting is going to be a lot closer to that 36% mark than that 32-31% mark, because Jokic is going to create so much more space for him on the offensive end of the floor than really any of his teammates did during the last two Hawks years, but especially last year when they replaced a great passer and versatile offensive piece in Al Horford with Dwight Howard, which kind of speaks for itself. But... The interesting part about the Nuggets offseason is that they made one move that I absolutely loved, which was the Paul Millsap signing, and all the rest of their moves really confused me. The trade of the 13th overall pick for number 24 and Trey Lyles, I think it was a questionable trade in a vacuum, and then when you look further, that 13th pick turned into Donovan Mitchell, who's looked incredible, and granted he hasn't played an NBA game yet, but he's looked incredible, and the Nuggets got Trey Lyles and Tyler Lydon, who will be the fourth and fifth power forwards on this team, maybe even the fifth and sixth power forwards on this team, and I just don't understand why, if Denver was going to trade down in the draft, that they didn't do so to try and strengthen their wing rotation, which is clearly the weakest part of this roster, and instead added yet another power forward. Maybe they have some moves lined up down the line where they trade Kenneth Farid, who didn't play in the first couple of preseason games. Um, the Mason Plumley signing confused me. I'm in a minority on a few trades that happened this summer. And one of them, nothing to do with the divisions, the Kyrie Irving trade, I actually thought Danny did fine in that trade. And then this trade in particular, I don't think it's as bad as people make it out to be. I And maybe it's because I still like Trey Lyles, even though he hasn't been good so far in Utah. He's still 20 years old. He still has the at least the outlines of a versatile uh, four in the modern NBA. Tyler Lydon is the same kind of way. He's a big, he's a big 6'10", 7-foot wingspan, and he shot 40% from three in college, and he shot the NBA three on a regular basis. And the thing is, they're, all the weaknesses Tyler Lydon has, they're not going to ask him to they're not going to ask him to do those things when when he reaches um on the nuggets and i feel like they're probably looking at the long-term upside of these two big men and maybe they have a move for Kenneth Reed down the road maybe they should have strengthened their wing rotation Don I love Donovan Mitchell I thought he was a top 10 prospect in this draft class and they, they certainly would have been also fine with Donovan Mitchell but I think we should wait a little bit and see if Lyles maybe develops a little bit more under Mike Malone than Quinn than Quinn Snyder not to say that Quinn Snyder didn't hinder him in any way but let's see maybe if a change of scenery happens he did play behind Derek Favors and Rudy Gobert I don't know I, I kind of still want to wait and see on this trade I agree it looks questionable but I don't think it's as bad as people are making out to be I like Tyler Lydon and his physical measures and I think if you pigeonhole him in a certain role on the team I think that he could develop into a really nice NBA player the last move of the Nuggets offseason was their very recent signing of Gary Harris to a four-year, $84 million contract extension. And 
this is what you became Twitter famous for yesterday, so I'm going to let you have most of the shine <laughs> on this. But my immediate reaction upon hearing about the signing was looking at that $84 million number and just being shocked by how large it was. But upon thinking about it further, Gary Harris is a really solid defensive player who looked bad by advanced numbers because the rest of the team around him was just absolute garbage on the defensive end. And he has this incredible connection on the offensive end with Jokic. The two of them run some of the prettiest backdoor plays that you're ever going to see from a couple of guys in their early 20s in the NBA. And I think Gary Harris has the upside to make this contract look like an underpay eventually. And that's definitely not something that I would have thought about sort of as a first blush reaction to the move. Yeah, so like you said, this is what this is where I uh, kind of went to battle with NBA Twitter here. I don't mind if you if anybody like disagrees with how much he should have been making. Like if it was like a difference of a couple million, I mean, sure, I guess you could talk me into that. But just the flat out just oh, $84 million for a guy who averaged 10 points a game. Well, first of all, nobody kept in mind that his first year, his rookie year was under Brian Shaw, who was not that good of a coach and ruined his confidence. And he, But despite that, he got better every year. Last year, he averaged 15 points a game and shot 42% from three. He was excellent in tr- the three things that you, that you want your player, that you want in a player to build around Jokic is someone who can spot up play in transition because Jokic is a point center it's it's crazy they just let him bring up the ball a lot and also cutting and according to the synergy stats Gary Harris averaged 1.2 points per 100 possessions in spot ups 1.3 in transition both in the 92nd percentile and off cuts he it, he averaged 1.3 points per, per uh, 100 possessions and if you watch all of Nikola Jokic's passing highlights I mean half of them are to Gary Harris on back because they have such great chemistry together and he's still 23 and he has the upside of a defensive player and my issue is if you think that Gary Harris didn't deserve any of that money, and I'm mainly talking to the people on NBA Twitter who think that the Nuggets are just handing out money to random players, which is far from the truth, who do you want the Nuggets to sign? Who do you think they should go for? Because there is nobody else on the market worth Gary Harris's value. The Nuggets are not a prime free agent destination, and you have to be able to keep your young and developing players. He's 23, he still has a lot of defensive upside, and like you like you were saying earlier, and like I mentioned earlier, the Nuggets had the by far the worst defensive rating in basketball last year, especially when Jokic started, got the starting job, and that made Gary Harris look bad I mean, when the whole team looked bad. So when you think about Victor Oladipo making $84 million, or signing a four-year $84 million contract extension last year, I would much rather have Gary Harris than Victor Oladipo, who was part of a trade that people are just making constant jokes about, talking about the Paul George trade. And... Uh, Gary Harris is just a really good player and people just need to watch more than five Nuggets games because Gary Harris is really good and I think he's going to get better. That's my rant. (laughs) I completely agree with everything you just said, although one thing I would like to point out is it is at least somewhat justified that people are worried about the Nuggets throwing a bunch of money at people that don't really deserve it when they gave Mason Plumlee three years and $41 million. 
That is fair. <laughs> that that is fair. But just strictly talking Gary Harris, that 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 was a great deal. I thought it was going to be more honestly, but they finally got the extension locked down. Now we can see what they do with Jokic and then move around some other pieces at the deadline. Let's move on to the Minnesota Timberwolves who completely changed their roster with the trade that is somehow only the second most ridiculous superstar trade heist in this division during this offseason, that being the Jimmy Butler trade, where they got Butler and the 16th pick, which became Justin Patton, and in return sent out Chris Dunn, who's already gotten injured in preseason, Zach Levine, who won't be back until January at the earliest, and is due for a contract in the next offseason, and then the number seven overall pick, which turned into Lowry Markinen instead of Dennis Smith Jr., but that's an entirely different matter. The Timberwolves also added Taj Gibson and Jeff Teague in free agency, and Taj Gibson, I think, will make their defense a lot better, but I'm worried about the spacing element of having Gibson on the floor with Andrew Wiggins, whose three-point shot at least looked better last year, and Jimmy Butler, who's also not primarily a three-point shooter. They also replaced Ricky Rubio with Jeff Teague, and I kind of want to talk about that first. So what were your thoughts on the Rubio-Teague swap? I thought it was interesting considering that after the Jimmy Butler trade, you need, now you have three players who need the ball in their hands to succeed. Uh, I thought Rubio kind of would have been the perfect point card to kind of just, he doesn't, he doesn't need the ball in his hands at all. And he could kind of just distribute. Uh, granted, I understand the need for having a point guard who can actually shoot the ball, even in the mid, in the mid range, let alone the three point range. And I still have my questions about this Timberwolves team. Jeff Teague, I, He's a fine player, but again, he kind of needs the ball in his hands. He's an okay distributor. I just have questions about how Wiggins and Butler are going to fit together. And don't get me wrong, I like the Butler trade. I understand why you have to do it. But I just want to see how Wiggins and Butler fit together. They both like to operate primarily on the right side of the court. Um, and Butler is way, is way more efficient at scoring on the right side of the court. He shot, he took 190 attempts last year on that right side, while Wiggins took 140. And Butler would, took... 50 less shots on the left side than Andrew Wiggins. So I kind of want to see how they're going to fit together. That's kind of my main question with the Timberwolves because I, Jimmy Butler's a top 15 player. I would much rather have him operating in his sweet spots than Andrew Wiggins, who is more deficient at everything to what Jimmy Butler does. Jimmy Butler just does how Andrew Wiggins scores. Jimmy Butler does it better, if that makes any sense. I'm not sure I entirely agree with your point on Rubio, just because if he doesn't have the ball in his hands, he's basically useless because he just can't shoot. And granted, he's not going to be a high volume shooter. He's going to get the ball to guys like Butler and Wiggins. But if he were on that team, he would also have to have the ball in his hands to create for Butler and Wiggins. And both of those guys are players that like to isolate and like to create for themselves. So my thought on it is that Ricky Rubio is probably a slightly better player than Jeff Teague, but that for this specific collection of talent in Carl Anthony Towns, Jimmy Butler, and Andrew Wiggins, I think Jeff Teague is a better fit. 
But speaking of Andrew Wiggins, the latest reports are that he has a five-year, $148 million extension offer on the table that he has said he will sign, but has not signed yet, which I think is an interesting thing to monitor going into the start of the season for the Timberwolves. But let's move on from the team that made the second best superstar trade in this conference to the team that made the best superstar trade in this conference in the Oklahoma City Thunder. And if Sam Presti does not win executive of the year at the next NBA awards show, (laughs) they should they should just not hand out that award ever again, because he truly worked some miracles in this offseason. He turned their two worst contracts in Victor Oladipo and Ennis Cantor into Paul George and Carmelo Anthony. And granted, it's one year of Paul George, but Victor Oladipo is an average to maybe even below average starter who's getting paid $21 million a year. And Ennis Cantor is getting $17 million a year to be a great offensive center and probably in the bottom five of the worst defensive players in the NBA. So, I mean, what are your thoughts on what the Thunder did this offseason? Sam Presti is a wizard. <laughs> that's that's all I could say. And it's incredible that the Thunder, it seemed like the Thunder just came out of left field on both of these trades. Now, I do want to give a little credit to Bill Simmons because back in July, he had a scoop saying that the Thunder's people and Carmelo Anthony's camp, whatever that means, were officially circling each other. Although Woj and and a few other and, and a few other insiders didn't even have the Thunder on the Thunder weren't even on Melo's list. That's what they were reporting. But Presti really did really did a masterful job. Yeah, I guess you're losing Demonis Sabonis, who could develop into something. But I think it's worth it for one year of Paul George. You have to keep Russell Westbrook happy, and they did. He signed the five year extension, which we can debate how the last two years of that contract is going to look when he's 33 and 34, and for. A player that's known for his athleticism but you also get Carmelo Anthony by getting rid of Venice Cantor and a also a second round pick and it might be one year of Carmelo Anthony but it's still worth it I mean I can see how this con this how this roster construct can fit together Melo's gonna play the four Billy Donovan said as much during media day and before training camp and Melo has always been a great spot-up shooter if Melo can just it, it looks like he by all accounts in this preseason everybody's in their honeymoon period but if Melo can accept the role as the third option and Paul George is just the perfect player alongside Westbrook he's more of a I see him as more of a 1b option I've always wanted Paul George to kind of reach that ceiling of like and he has and he's led a team to two Eastern Conference Finals but he just seems more like of the a really really he's better suited being the second player next to a dynamic top seven player like Westbrook so I really love what Presti did this offseason the Thunder are in the conversation now I don't know how much in the conversation relative to when you're talking about the Warriors is basically a Death Star Destroyer out in the Bay Area but the Presti made great moves this offseason and he should win executive of the year I don't think there is a single sports fan in Oklahoma City who is going to care about how bad the final two years of Russell Westbrook's contract might look. Yes, I agree. 
And I want to say might just because on the one hand, yes, Russell is a player that relies heavily on his athleticism, who's now signed through his age 34 season. But on the other hand, Russell Westbrook is a cyborg. And if anyone other than LeBron James is going to still be that kind of athletic freak at age 34, I would put my money on it being Russell Westbrook. And ultimately, I think the biggest victory of Presti's offseason was not those two just ridiculous trades, but getting Westbrook to sign that contract extension because it was entirely possible if Russell didn't sign that contract extension that we'd get to the end of this season and George, Carmelo Anthony, and Russell Westbrook would sit in a room together and say, all right, it was a good year, we had fun, and now we're going to go our separate ways. But now, because Presti has shown that he is a wizard that could pull off these ridiculous superstar trades, he got one of the top seven players in the league to commit to the franchise for many years down the road. And it seems to make perfect sense now. Well, of course, Westbrook was going to sign the extension. But if you just look back at some of the headlines from the end of last year, or even some of the headlines in June about Russell Westbrook's going to go to Los Angeles. It's guaranteed. Maybe Paul George will take him with him to Los Angeles. And now we've answered all of those questions in a very definitive and very positive way for the Thunder franchise. I just want to make it very clear. The Thunder absolutely had to sign Russell Westbrook to this extension. I just think that it's also fair to point out that the last two years, Cyborg uh, factor involved, I think it is worth to talk about how bad the the last two years could look on his uh contract but the thunder had to do it and i really i really i can't wait to watch this team because not only did they get paul george and carmelo anthony patrick patterson is a really good player that they got on a really cheap deal for for uh, i i believe it was a three year 16 million dollar deal that is insane value for someone who can play you could play a little bit of defense stretch the four stretch the floor out at the four position maybe play some small ball five the thunder now have some more versatile options that they can do with their roster i think it's also worth pointing out even though this is a far more minor point than the patterson signing which i agree will look great this season especially since patterson is one of those guys who traditionally is underrated by box score stats and is loved by most of the advanced metrics. Signing Raymond Felton, I think, was important for them. And I don't say that because Raymond Felton is good, because I watched him play a lot for the Clippers last year, and he really isn't all that good. But Samaje Kristen, as your backup point guard, was an absolute, I was gonna say. absolute <laughs> abomination. And the team is going to improve dramatically in their point guard rotation just by the fact that they have at least bad players as opposed to like almost one of the worst players ever <laughs> yeah near near bottom of the nba caliber play from Kristen, who i want to look this up actually i don't think he finished the season shooting above 30 percent from the floor, that's amazing is... <laughs> oh no no i'm sorry he ended up shooting 34.5 percent from the floor. Sorry, sorry for the insult there, Samaje, but oh, he did man. shoot a remarkable 19 percent on three pointers and 55 percent from the line. Yeah, I'm speechless. I that's that's really bad. I that really puts into perspective how bad he was. The bench is also going to be something to track this offseason. They might be a little thin, but I like Abrinas. He could shoot the ball. Raymond Felton is a 
is a passable backup and we'll see and Patrick Patterson coming off the bench they have a rotation but the bench still is a little thin all right let's move on to the Portland Trailblazers who didn't really do all that much this offseason due to their cap situation I think they're now down to the third highest payroll in the league after trading Alan Crabb for Andrew Nicholson who they immediately stretched Their biggest move was probably when they traded the number 15 and number 20 overall picks for Zach Collins at number 10. And I really liked that trade as a Kings fan. And on the opposite side, I really did not understand this move for the Trailblazers because they just got a center who fits incredibly well with their team in Yusuf Nurkic, who is also a player who's had a history of potential attitude problems when any other center appeared that might be in the rotation ahead of him. So drafting a center with a lottery pick just after getting Nurkic is a potential locker room disaster in my mind. And I think the Trailblazers would have been much better served by either just using those 15 and 20 picks to take some flyers on wing players, or what might have been even more helpful is trying to attach that 20th pick to the Evan Turner contract and see if they can create some more space to maybe sign Nurkic to an extension this coming offseason. Yeah, I mean, I like Zach Collins as a player, but I don't understand the trading the 15 and 20 picks either. When you're a cap-strap team like the Blazers, and we kind of talked about this with the Grizzlies and the Pelicans on the last uh, Division uh, Preview podcast, but when you're cap-strapped like the Blazers are, trading the Allen Crabb contract, that obviously alleviates some of it, but building through the draft and getting cheap rookie contracts is kind of a good way to bolster the roster. Or like you were saying, you trade away one of those picks and attach it to, say, Turner, attach it to a Turner, maybe alleviate some contracts that way. But I guess I kind they might need some big man depth. I like Caleb Swanigan, who they also uh, picked up out of Purdue. Uh, I thought he was a I thought he was a solid player in college. He kind of looks good in the preseason. I think he might maybe crack some minutes in the rotation. But it's going to be interesting to do to see how the Trailblazers go about this for the next two to three years because um, the question has always been: Can Dame can a starting backcourt of Dame Lillard and CJ McCollum, who is being generous here, is not a great, particularly great defensive backcourt? So with their contracts, it's going to be interesting to see what they do down the road. But I like Zach Collins as a player, though. I mean, I could see why they took him. I mean, he's seven feet. He could potentially stretch. He projects out to be a center who stretch the stretches. The, he has a nice athleticism to go along with him. So the Blazers, they were a feel good story a few years ago. But I, I just see a ceiling with this team. And I'm just I'm just not too sure. Um, how far they can go with this current roster construct right now. And they kind of gave away some depth with trading away Alan Crabb. I mean, Jake Lehman is now part of the rotation. Anthony Morrow, who really couldn't crack minutes with the Thunder last year. He's strictly just a three-point shooter at this point in his career. I like Dame Lillard and CJ McCollum, but I just see a really defined ceiling with this team. I don't know what you think. I think that this team has one of the higher variances of really any team in the NBA, and they're in a division with a bunch of teams that I think have really high variance, with one notable exception that we're about to get to. But I think the thing with Portland is that they were 14 and 6 last year with Nurkic, but 
they yes. were 14 and six and you know he was on the team the entirety of the season after the all-star break Nurkic in his first three years in the NBA has played 62 32 and 65 games last season there's a strong injury element to Nurkic that I think will really change the fortunes of this team. I think if Nurkic is healthy, maybe that strong stretch down the end of last season is indicative of what they are now, and maybe they're a 48-win team, but I just don't see Nurkic staying healthy for a full year. He's never done it before, and also they did trade away Mason Plumley, who, even though he didn't really fit with anyone else on the team other than as a center, which is the role that Nurkic filled as soon as he got to the team, I feel like he could have been at least an adequate backup in case of Nurkic injury, which I think is pretty likely. Although I will admit I'm also very high on Caleb Swanigan, and honestly, (laughs) I think a lot more highly of Swanigan than I do of Zach Collins, but maybe that's just me. Can I say one more thing about Nurkic? I've always been a Nurkic guy. I know he's had attitude problems, but the problem is, like you were mentioning, he couldn't, st- he can't stay healthy. In his second year, he played 32 games because he had a partially torn patella tendon. That's not good, obviously, but he's always had the talent. And I think with the Blazers last year, now that he realizes that he's not competing with a player who is clearly better than him in Jokic, it kind of unlocked a few things. He has a mid-range jumper. He showed that he was a great passer at the elbows, and he is a brick when it comes to setting screens to get Lillard and McCollum off of screens and uh, sh- and uh, chuck up shots. Um, he It is also worth noting that he came in in better shape this year, but again, it is training camp a preseason and everybody comes in t- into training camp in the best shape of their life. But I really think if Nurkic is, com- it is a contract year, and if Nurkic is committed to staying in shape, I think this could be, I think this isn't, the 14 and 6 stretch that we saw last year, I really don't th- I don't think this will be necessarily a fluke. All right, let's move on now to the last team in the division, the Utah Jazz. They lost Gordon Hayward to the Boston Celtics in what was both entertaining and incredibly sad to watch as an outsider and was almost certainly devastating for Jazz fans. And that was really unfortunate, just the way that all shook out with Chris Haynes breaking the news before Gordon was ready to release his Players' Tribune, and then the walk back, which, you know, proved very clearly shortly afterwards to just be, wait a minute, I haven't finished my Players' Tribune article yet. But (laughs) they also traded for Donovan Mitchell in the trade that we already discussed in the Denver section, the 13 for 24 and Trey Lyles. Donovan Mitchell's looked great already. You said you had him in your top 10. I'm not sure I would have had him that high, but I certainly thought he would have been in that 10, 11, 12 range rather than 13 where he got picked. So, you know, not a massive massive slippage in the draft, but certainly I thought better than where he ended up getting drafted. They also swapped George Hill for Ricky Rubio. And similarly to why I thought Jeff Teague was a better fit for the Timberwolves than Ricky Rubio, I also think George Hill was a little bit better of a fit for the Jazz than Rubio, just because both Hill and Rubio are incredible defensive point guards. I would say arguably both in the top 10 in terms of defensive point guards in the NBA. 
But Ricky Rubio's greatest strength is being able to get out and run in transition and dish out dimes in transition. And the Jazz ran the slowest paced offense in the NBA last season by far, and they lost their best offensive creator in Gordon Hayward. I think it's entirely not only possible, but likely that the Jazz will be a top three defense and a bottom three offense. And that's my question with the Jazz. I think the Jazz can, I mean, it's relative whenever you're saying salvage (laughs) the remnants of losing your franchise player. I mean, they built everything around Gordon Hayward. And that's why I kind of disagree with you. I think Rubio is a better fit for the Jazz than George Hill for this particular team because George Hill was a perfect guard to play off of Gordon Hayward, who kept getting better every year as a creator. And Quinn Snyder kept putting him in different spots to shoot to shoot the ball he needs to improve Gordon Hayward wasn't necessarily a post-up player but he was starting to uncover that he was scoring off of dribble handoffs running him off of screens and Gordon Hayward really was getting getting better every year as a creator so George Hill was the perfect fit for him when you think about it now Ricky Rubio will have the ball in his hands and we kind of already talked about earlier how he's one of the best passers in the league but if the Jazz play at this slow pace when they now have all these young players and Rudy Gobert who doesn't necessarily need the ball in his hands um, Derek Favors uh, he could post up a little bit but I'd much rather build my team around Rubio and can my other question is can Rodney Hood step into that role as well can Rodney Hood actually also stay healthy because he's had a few a few lower extremity injuries the last few years so losing your franchise losing a franchise player like Gordon Hayward is obviously a big blow especially when your truck the CBA was allegedly supposed to be built to help small market teams be able to keep the players that they drafted but the Jazz did everything they could and Gordon Hayward still left I still think the Jazz can kind of salvage can still kind of fight for the bottom seeds in the west they obviously they they were on the rise last year and then they lose gordon hayward but um another big blow i think is dante exum who separated his shoulder a few nights ago and is out for the season and just just a rough start to his career um i actually was pretty high on exum even though he couldn't necessarily shoot i liked his defensive upside and his ability in transition because he's just qu- he's just quick as a fox and that's it's just really unfortunate but they have good play I like Joe Ingles Alec Burks I love Donovan Mitchell like I was saying before I think he is the perfect type type of culture guy he he works hard he played under Rick Pitino and despite all of Rick Pitino's other stuff going on he was a really good coach uh to, he was a real rick patino does not like any players at all and he loved donovan mitchell and that just speaks to donovan mitchell's character i think and i i really want i'm interested to see if they speed up the pace with rubio as the point guard i guess if quinn snyder decides to not methodically grind teams out keep an eye out for rodney hood who when Gordon Hayward was on the floor. Rodney averaged about 14 points for 36 minutes. And when Gordon Hayward was off the floor, Rodney Hood averaged over 20 points per 36 minutes. And he will be relied upon a lot more on the offensive end. And given how well he performed without Hayward in the lineup, playing an almost identical role to what Hood's best role is, namely as a 
three-point shooter with, granted, a little bit less ball handling than Hayward, but a lot more emphasis on spot-up shooting. I think Rodney Hood could have a breakout year. Just got to stay healthy. All right, let's move on to the five major questions section, and we're going to start with the Oklahoma City Thunder. Are the Oklahoma City Thunder, as currently constructed after the Carmelo Anthony trade, the team in the NBA, or more accurately, let's say, the team in the Western Conference that is best positioned to knock off the Golden State Warriors? And I'm going to let you go first on this one. This is tough because I I still like the Rockets slightly more than the Thunder, but I do see a roadmap for the Thunder to beat the Warriors because if you think about the... I think a question a lot of people surprisingly, I, I, to my surprise, came out with this year was, especially when, what we saw in the finals, and that finals was a lot closer than the five-game series indicated, was do you try to outscore the Warriors? Because, I mean, you can't really defend them. And the Thunder have three players that could help a team give the Warriors a series. I don't know if they'll beat them. I think the Warriors are borderline unstoppable, but... The Thunder could theoretically say they put out a lineup of Russell Westbrook, Andre Roberson, Paul George, Carmelo Anthony, and like Patrick Patterson, or Steven Adams and Melo at the four. The Thunder have a lot more defenders, and I I am so looking forward to seeing Andre Roberson and Paul George just hound perimeter players. That's going to be a sight to see. I still would give the Rockets the edge just because I think they have more multi-positional defenders than the Thunder do, but the Thunder can now also throw out some small ball lineups of their own that could keep up with the Warriors offensively, and I guess that's the million-dollar question. If you can't defend the Warriors, do you try to outscore them? Which, I mean, that's why the Warriors are probably the best team ever assembled. It's just, it's (laughs) either way, it just seems like you're cooked (laughs) but i mean if a team could outscore the warriors i think the thunder could do it for a few games in the series but i would still give the slight edge to the rockets i completely agree with you i would also give the slight edge to the rockets i think getting chris paul obviously is huge for the rockets that's the understatement of the century but i think that adding pj tucker and luke bamute to that team will help them so much on the defensive end And they were still an above-average defensive team last season. They ended the year 12th in defensive rating, and they were second in offensive rating, but they also had one of the 10 best offensive ratings of all time. They just happened to play in the same season as last year's Golden State Warriors. And I think that both the Rockets and the Thunder are better positioned to knock off the Warriors than any team in the NBA was last season. I think the Cavs are also better than they were last year in terms of the playoffs, but I don't want to make any definitive statements about them until we really have more knowledge about the extent of Isaiah Thomas's injury. Let's move on to the question for the Minnesota Timberwolves. And my question for them is, can the Timberwolves win 50 games? Now, Tim Bontemps famously proclaimed last season that he thought the Timberwolves would win 50 games. They won 31 games. And that 31 game mark is why I think there is no chance. Well, okay, fine. There is maybe a 1% chance that the Timberwolves top 50 games because even though their point differential was better than their record going from 31 and 51 to above 
50 games is just too big of a leap for me to see, even with Carl Anthony Towns and Andrew Wiggins expected to progress along their aging curves and adding Jimmy Butler to the team, obviously an all NBA player. It's just so hard to add that many wins to a 30 win team that they jump into the fifties. I just don't see that. I don't see it either. And by the way, <laughs> speaking of Tim Bontemps, Zach Lowe and a few others made a big stink about that. And he, he, Tim Bontemps, let's just say, owed a few dinners to some writers, according to some podcasts I listened to. But there is like less. I, I really, they, there's no way they get 50 wins. I was optimistic on the Timberwolves when they first got Butler, but then when I saw what happened after, I just have questions at with Tibbs as not a head coach, but as a head coach slash general manager, because he's doing the thing where he took a year off. He said he learned a lot, but then he's reverting back to his instincts. It's kind of like if somebody like changes their jump shot and, but in the heat of the moment in the game, they just revert back to their instincts. You sign Taj Gibson, you sign Jamal Crawford, who has not been good for a few years now, besides the once in a blue moon, 30 point game off the bench, or you sign him off the wave wire and you to kind of bring him in as a veteran. I just really don't see how this roster fits together. And that's one of my main sticking points is what I was talking earlier. Cam Butler and Wiggins fit together. Butler is a top 15 player. He's way better than Wiggins, but Wiggins is also a developing 22-year-old. And I saw a quote today from Sam Amick, a quote from Tom Thibodeau saying that potential means losing and we don't have time for potential, which means... You can't, you can't, my thing is you can't expect twenty a 21-year-old Carl Anthony Towns and a 22-year-old Andrew Wiggins to just de- develop instantly like that. You have to be patient with them. And that's one of the problems that I have with Thibodeau is he's just, is he too quick to just expect too much from his players? And I just, I'm less and less enthusiastic about the Timberwolves every day. That's just me. This is something that I've been sitting on for a while, so... Can we please stop trying to pretend that the combined coach GM is anything other than the stupidest idea to hit the NBA in the last 10 years? These jobs are some of the most competitive jobs in the world. There are 30 of them, 30 GM jobs and 30 coaching jobs. And every year other than last year, those jobs turn over. Most coaches don't stay in one spot for more than three or four years. Most general managers don't stay in one spot for more than five or six years. And they're both incredibly difficult and time-consuming jobs. And I just don't see why it's even reasonable to, first of all, expect that coaches who have absolutely zero front office experience will be anything other than failures in the front office. But second of all, to expect anyone to do both of those jobs is ludicrous to me. And even if all of these guys have someone running the day-to-day operations like Jeff Bauer in Detroit running most of the things for Stan Van Gundy, it just seems so counterproductive to take the two most important jobs on your team that don't involve actually playing on the floor and giving them to the same person. Preach. I mean, it requires two different temperaments. Uh, if a coach 
is on a losing skid, they're going to do whatever they can to stop it. And if that same person is also in charge of the roster, you're going to make hasty moves and hasty decisions to, in an effort to try to mitigate the losing, but it could hinder you long-term. And that's my thing with, and I mean, admittedly, I was kind of, I kind of liked the idea a few years ago, but after seeing Doc Rivers and the job he did, Stan Van Gundy and the job he was doing so far, the only one successful really is Greg Popovich, but him and R.C. Buford are symbiotic and they negotiate everything with each other. And And Greg Popovich used to be the GM. Yeah, exactly. And he had front office experience. So I, we just need to not have any more coaches be in charge of the roster personnel as well. Because it's just two different jobs. You need two different temperaments. All right. Now that we've ranted about that for long enough, let's move on to the Nuggets. Two rants today is great. <laughs> yeah, getting, getting, a lot of, getting a lot off our chests here. Uh, so big question about the Denver Nuggets. Can they climb out of the bottom five on defense can they climb out of the bottom 10 in defense and my thought on this team is that i think that the nuggets will be somewhere between the 21st and 23rd ranked defense next year i think paul Millsap improves them pretty significantly on that end of the floor but i think ultimately it'll be really 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 difficult for anyone to build a average or top 20 defense with Nikola Jokic at center and I feel bad saying that because I love watching Jokic play and he's such a clear positive for this team as you mentioned with their offensive rating being as incredible as it was with him on the floor but just because of Jokic's athletic limitations I just don't see a way that you build a top 20 defense around him. Yeah, just to piggyback off what you said, I was mentioning earlier, if the Nuggets could get into the top 17 range, that was kind of like my optimistic take. I kind of see him in the top 20. Um, I think Gary Harris is going to continue upwards um, on his defensive development. I think Paul Millsap was just a huge, a huge upgrade. And um, they... I, I just really don't see anywhere else where they can improve. I mean, Jokic is also uh, another training camp, best shape of my life story. Jokic also got in pretty good shape this year, so maybe he could be a little bit more lighter on his feet, but he just has too many athletic limitations. I really don't see the Nuggets climbing into nowhere close near the top 15, probably somewhere close to the 22 to 20 range. That's about it. So moving from a team with an incredible offense and a terrible defense to a team with the reverse in the Utah Jazz. And my question on the Jazz is, can they score enough to return to the playoffs? And for me, this is an easy yes. And the main reason behind that is because I was a huge fan of the Ben Wallace-led Pistons teams. And as a side note, if you think Chauncey Billups was the leader of those Pistons teams, you and I need to have a long conversation about that. But <laughs> I think that the Jazz will be so spectacular on the defensive end that they'll be able to win a bunch of 85 to 80 games. I mean, Gordon Hayward is a great defender, but Rodney Hood is a pretty good defender. They added Tabo Cephalosha, who's going to be really helpful on the defensive end of the floor. And adding Ekpe Udo, who's not really an offensive player at all, but a great athlete and really, really smart defensive player who's been one of the best players outside of the NBA for the past couple of years. 
with him, then you have some insurance against the inevitable Derek Favors injury and can keep your defense in that top three range. I think the Jazz are easily in the top five defensively and almost certainly, I think, in the top three. And the fact that their offense is probably going to be terrible isn't going to prevent them from holding most teams to 90 points or less, even in the massively offensively focused era currently in the NBA. See, my problem with that is um, the Jazz, like we were mentioning earlier, the Jazz had the slowest pace in the NBA last year. The Dallas Mavericks were just ahead of them in pace at, at a 29. And the West had an arms race this year where they added a bunch of really good perimeter players stars moving from the east to the west and there's still interesting teams that i like over the jazz such as the clippers i think the grizzlies are going to be a mainstay always in the playoffs i think the wolves will make it to the playoffs above the jazz so the question is can for me at least is can the jazz fight for the eighth seed where it's going to be a bar fight down there I guess I would lean towards yes. My question is, if, to make it a more comfortable yes, is I want to see if Quinn Snyder can play more to his personnel now, now that he has longer and younger athletes running the floor and Ricky Rubio leading the break. I'd probably lean towards yes. I do also like this Jazz team as I thought, I guess you, they did as well as they could losing a franchise player in Gordon Hayward. Um, I expect Donovan Mitchell also to contribute as well. But I think I think the Jazz are going to be right there at the eighth seed, probably smack dab right there, probably f- scratching and clawing for it um, all season long. Another team that will probably be scratching and clawing for that eighth seed for most of this season in the Portland Trailblazers. And I guess the question for them is just what are they going to get from Yusuf Nurkic? Because... Even though Nurkic was playing on a broken leg in their series against the Warriors, the team still outscored the Warriors with him on the floor in that game. And granted, it's a ridiculously small sample size, but the 14-6 and stretch down the end of last season was a pretty sizable group of games, you know, more than the one game against the Warriors. And really, I think everything that the Blazers can do this next season revolves around what they can get from Nurkic because Dame Lillard and CJ McCollum are two of the best scoring guards we have in the NBA. But if they don't have Nurkic locking down the post for them, I mean, they have almost nothing on the wings. They have one above average three-point shooter on the wings now, and that above average three-point shooter is Mo Harkless, who was above average by the most ridiculous of margins when he just stopped shooting three-pointers down the stretch of last season so he could stay above that 35% threshold. I think it's possible but unlikely that the four through eight seeds in the Western Conference for these upcoming playoffs are all from this division. And I'm wary about that because I think the Clippers are better than the Trailblazers and maybe also better than the Jazz. But This division has a lot of talent in it, and all of these teams would be playoff locks in the Eastern Conference, and I think all of these teams have a pretty solid chance at the postseason, and on the other hand, the only team that would really shock me if they missed the playoffs would be Oklahoma City. So I guess I kind of just answered my own que- the, that question with the last question. Um, I don't think Portland can defend enough to make the playoffs. Uh, Yusuf Nurkic is a great is a 
I wouldn't okay great is too strong of a term let me rewind it back he is a good positional defender but he's not necessarily the best rim protector the Blazers had a really terrible defense last season before they traded for Nurkic and it got better of course when they traded for Nurkic they had a 107 defensive rating with Nurkic on the floor and a hundred and 111 defensive rating with Nurkic off but that's still not great by any stretch and like we were saying earlier they lost some of their wing depth and Lillard and McCollum are just a bad defensive backcourt they could score with the best of them and that's why I think they're going to be one of the teams at the bottom of the barrel in the Western Conference scrapping for that last seed and when I say bottom of the barrel I mean teams competing for those bottom two seeds left I just don't see the Blazers making the playoffs just because the Jazz I like the Jazz fit around the roster better than I like the Blazers fit even though I like Nurkic, Willard, and McCollum as kind of like as kind of like the spinal backbone of the starting five, but I'm just not so sure about the wing depth. Um, and they just, I don't know if they have enough shooters outside of Lillard and McCollum, and they really have to rely on their big th- on their big three, so to speak, a lot. And I think the Jazz just have a more depth and a better fit with each other than the Blazers do. So my answer would be no, they can't. I don't think they will. And. To be clear, I think that the Blazers are the fifth best team in this division, and I think it's probably slightly more likely that three teams make the playoffs from this division rather than five, but I can see all five of these teams making the playoffs. I could see a world in which all five of these teams make the playoffs, and there isn't another division in the NBA about which I could confidently say that. And I'm not even sure there's another division in the NBA I could say confidently would have four teams in the playoffs. But let's move on quickly to looking at the longer term outlook for this division. And I think the biggest question about the long term outlook of this division is what we're going to see from Carl Anthony Towns. And I wanted to phrase this question in a specific way, which is if you had to choose right now in a vacuum, so not picking for any specific team that might have specific needs, in a vacuum, who would you rather have, Giannis or Carl Anthony Towns? I laughed when you sent me this question because (laughs) it feels like it's almost an impossible choice to make. So are we talking about... Are we strictly talking then a player that we want to build our franchise around? Are we talking about it like that? Or who do we think will be who has the higher upside in the future? Because they both have ridiculously high upside, but it's impossible to choose between the two. But I'm going to have to make a choice anyway. Let's say building your franchise around them, but you're doing it in a vacuum. So like... It's say it's like a fantasy draft snake style and you have, I guess it would be like the third overall pick given how good these two guys are, but you have whatever pick it is. You've got no one else on your team. You have to pick one of the two of them to build your team around. Who would you choose? I would take Giannis and that's mainly because Giannis strangely is underrated on the defensive end. I think he's a great defender in terms of versatility. He could play small ball five. I mean, he led the Bucks in all five statistical categories. I think only four players have done that in the history of the NBA. I mean, that's pretty good for a 22-year-old. And 
he can guard the perimeter. He can protect the rim. And Cat is just not a good defender right now. I can see him being a very good defender later on in his career. But defense is hard for 20, 21-year-olds, which is also one of the reasons why I'm frightened by Tom Thibodeau's comments earlier today, um, expecting Cat to just develop into one instantly. And it really just pains me that I have to leave Cat off the list. And can I just list Cat's stats the last two, from February to March really quick last year? Because I it's one of my favorite things to do when talking about basketball is listing these stats. So Carl Anthony Towns from Febu- in February and March averaged 28.2 points per game, 13 rebounds per game on 59% from the field and he shot 41 percent from three on 3.2 attempts for a 21 year old to do that and i don't care if it's on a bad team for a 21 year old to do that is absolutely absurd but with that said i'm taking Giannis, and if Giannis ever gets uh average if he shoots 35 percent from nba three-point range it's over like <laughs> there's no other way to say it it's it's over he can already pass he can already get to the rim with these. He started showing his <laughs> jump shot a little bit against the Bulls, and it's his upside is just freakish. It's scary. I I can't wait to see him in person. That's one of my goals. I got to see him in person. So I agree with you. I would take Giannis, and I think I'm a little bit more sure about it than you are. And my reasoning behind it is that Giannis's lack of a jump shot at the moment is a lot less damaging than Carl Anthony Towns' defense. And I totally agree with you that Giannis is an underrated defender because he is an absurdly talented defender who is probably already in the top 20 best defenders in the NBA. And he's the only person who you could even say could potentially defend one through five. And he really could do it. Well, Draymond too. Well, but see, I don't think Draymond is quick enough to guard some of the faster point guards in the league, but I think Giannis is, and I think that's the difference there. And also, just his ability to jump into passing lanes and chase down blocks and dunk from the free throw line just by extending his 27-foot arms to the rim. I mean, (laughs) I think that it is easier to build a team around Giannis than it is to build a team around Carl Anthony Towns because defense at center is so important and i think Giannis's lack of a jump shot is easier to fix and granted i said in a vacuum but if we're looking at it not in a vacuum the bucks have a bunch of solid three-point shooters chris middleton tony snell malcolm brogdon and jabari parker was above 40 percent from three for most of last season and then he tailed off right before his injury ended up still finishing 37 percent from deep And if you have shooters around Giannis, then there's really not much you can do. But it's hard to get the kind of defensive talent around Carl Anthony Towns that can cover up for his weaknesses on that end. So they're both incredible to watch, and they're two of my favorite players in the NBA. But I'd have to go with Giannis on this one. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, you really put a tough question on that one for me. I I still think... You think Carl Anthony Towns can project out to be an elite defender or a very good one? Honestly, I think his ceiling on that end is above average, just because 
I haven't seen anything from him defensively that would lead me to believe that he's going to end up eventually becoming an elite defender. And granted, I don't want to bet against him because he's ridiculously talented, but I just think that I haven't seen it from him. And even though he's a young player that will get it, I think there's a lot more of a history of guys developing jump shots than there is of really bad defensive bigs becoming really good defensive bigs after at least some track record of just... I mean, Carl Anthony Towns had the worst defensive RPM among centers last season. And granted, that's, you know, that's only one number, but that's a pretty strong statement right there. And I don't think I could make as strong as a statement about Giannis not being able to get a jump shot as I can by saying Carl Anthony Towns' defensive RPM numbers. Okay, yeah, when you put it that way, I feel (laughs) a lot better, even though I was, I guess I was sort of confident in my Giannis choice. I feel a lot better when you put it that way. (laughs) All right, anything else you want to go over before we wrap up? No, I I think that's it. We are nine days away from the NBA season, my friend, and it's going to be really fun. I know everybody's freaked out about the inevitable Warriors winning the championship, but there are so many good storylines this year. I'm just really excited for the season to start. Absolutely. All right. Well, he is Jordan Christmas. You can find him on Twitter at Sports Talk Xmas, S-P-O-R-T-S-T-A-L-K-X-M-A-S. And I'm sure that his Twitter profile has gotten a lot more attention over the past couple days. <laughs> you can also find his work on the hashtag basketball website, where you can also find my work and the work of all the other talented writers in the hashtag basketball family. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please leave a rating and or a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear from you. And also reviews are a really great way for us to spread the word about the podcast. If you have any feedback, good, bad, indifferent, something else that doesn't fit into one of those three categories, you can feel free to reach out to me on Twitter at N-B-A-J-O-H-N-S-O-N, or you can send me an email at nickaj.nba at gmail.com. And as always, thanks so much for listening. (laughs)